So welcome to the Next Gen Cast. My name's Nish, I'm a GP registrar in Cambridge and I helped set up Next Gen GP just over three years ago. Next Gen is a leadership programme that was set out to energise, engage and empower GPs right at the start of their careers. And at the core of what we do is a series of interviews with senior leaders from the NHS and even from outside of healthcare. We really just want to get to know the people behind the titles and understand the lessons and advice they've learned from their careers so far. And that's exactly what we're hoping to do through this podcast. Now, before we start, I think most of our listeners will be from the NHS. And I just want to take a moment to say thank you so much for everything that you're doing on the front line. Now, I know a lot of our next gen events have, of course, been cancelled for now. But I hope that these interviews will bring you a bit of inspiration during these strange times. Please forgive us if the tech isn't super slick. We don't have lots of time to edit the conversations. But what you're going to hear is a relatively unfiltered, unscripted and a very real conversation with a leader who has some great stuff to share with you all. I really wanted our first guest to be quite a senior leader with lots of experience and some great advice to share and the grace and humility to take the time to do that. I couldn't think of anyone better really than Sir David Haslam. David stepped down as chair of NICE last year, um, but previously he's been president of the BMA, president and chair of the RCGP and vice chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, as well as a GP for over 35 years. He's written 13 books, well over 2,000 articles for the medical and lay press, and he was knighted in 2018 for services to NHS leadership. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So David Haslam, it is a real privilege to speak to you today. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to be our first guest on the Next Generation GP podcast and for making time to do this during these quite extraordinary times. It's also a really great opportunity for me to say a huge thank you to you for your support and your encouragement of Next Gen and of me personally over the years, which has been hugely appreciated. Well, it's absolutely my pleasure and I'm, I'm honoured to be your first guest. What an accolade. Thank you, David. So we're recording this over Zoom, of course, because we are in the lockdown at the moment. So where are you today? I'm sitting in my uh, my house in rural Dorset, looking out the window up, up, up the hill. Just the other side of the hill is the sea. So most days I manage to walk up there and have a glance at the sea and check that it's still there. Uh, and it's a delightful place to live. But um, But as you say, we're in lockdown and that makes the world a very, very strange place. And I mean, let's start simple, really. How how are you? How are you finding all of this? Most of the t- most of the time, I'm fine. I'm quite busy. I've got quite a lot to do. Um, I, I seem to have most days sort of Zoom meetings with someone or other. Uh, I've had about three or four such discussions on on Zoom today, as well as as well as sort of friend. You know, we get friends come around for drinks via Zoom and uh, all the rest, as I think we're all doing. Um, and you just have you just have to get on with it. I mean, there, there's no you can either take an attitude of oh God, ain't it awful? Or well, it is awful, but let's let's try and make the best of it. And at the same time, I'm really aware of what a, a dreadful time so many people in our profession are having at, uh, at facing facing the the tragedy that's facing the nation at the moment. Mm. 
So David, most people know you as the the nice guy, or maybe Sir Nice now, which is no, you can you can drop the Sir. <laughs> Are you sure? I feel like yeah, I should okay. curtsy every time I, I well, say your name. Of course you name. should, but we'll, we'll take we'll take that for granted. <laughs> just I'm doing it behind Zoom. You just can't see me. Um, so. Obviously, that's not just a reflection of your personality, but because you were chair of NICE. Um, you finished up last year after, I think, six years in the role. Yeah. Um, what have you been up to since then? Um, well, since finishing there, I um, almost immediately, or just about overlapping with it, I was appointed uh, chair of a children's cancer charity called Click Sergeant. Um, and almost almost as I started that job, the chief executive of Click Sergeant was uh, was headhunted to go to another role. So I actually had a, a major task of recruiting a new chief exec, uh, which was fascinating and challenging. It was a completely new role and new world for me. So that was interesting. Uh, I also uh, work very part-time for an organization called Kaleidoscope Health and Care, uh, that I've been advisor to for for a few years, and I, I do a bit of work for them now. And um, I find this really odd every time I say it, but I'm a director of the state health service in Cyprus. And um, whilst that did involve going to Cyprus once a month, it now involves board meetings about every 10 days, again via Zoom, to deal with the uh, COVID-19 crisis as it's affecting another country. And again, this is I'm you know so far out of my comfort zone with, with some of these things that I find that really oh rejuvenating is that the word I mean I one thing I enjoy despite my considerable age is taking on new tasks and finding new new challenges and then on top of on top of those as if that wasn't enough I'm doing the other things everybody else is doing in uh, in lockdown like making sourdough bread are you um, really <laughs> absolutely well i have to, oh, even i haven't done that yet no no it's the the ultimate middle class cliche for <laughs> you know, people my age and i've been trying to relearn for 50 something years i've been failing to learn the guitar so i'm trying that again and i'm doing quite a lot of writing he's sitting around doing nothing clearly is not it's not in your personality david <laughs> absolutely not Let's just go back a bit. Um, you said you were appointed chair of Click Sergeant, and I think something our next gen GPs are quite curious about is why leaders choose to take on the roles that they do. So you probably had lots of options presented to you when you left Nice. Um, what made you choose that one? Well, uh, you, you, you've suggested there that I tend to choose jobs. I tend to. I think in the past it's been more in a case of uh, faced with. A possibility does it strike me as an interesting thing that I would like to consider pursuing with with click sergeant um, uh, towards the end of 2018 before I finished with nice uh, I uh, completely out of the blue developed cancer of the tonsil um, just a, a really trivial uh, one-sided sore throat it was a symptom that made me concerned uh, Cut a long story short, eventually diagnosed as a carcinoma, ending up with radiotherapy, chemotherapy, two-stone weight loss, gastrostomy, not eating any solid food for about two, three months. A totally brutal experience, which I'm now through and I've learned a lot from. And one of the things I learned from it was that I didn't know anything about what it was like to suffer from cancer, to go through this. Um, I've often said in the past that I calculated that in my career I must have carried out a quarter of a million consultations. And it's quite embarrassing to realize you did that without actually appreciating 
some of the personal aspects. And I, I guess that's inevitable. But having having experienced the sense of, oh gosh, what terror and terror and terror and and um I deliberately said that three times. Mm. Um and uncertainty and not knowing what to do and the real importance of in my case as an adult the support from people like Macmillan and high quality multidisciplinary teams uh, the opportunity to have some part to bring whatever skill it was to an organization that tried to do that for families and young people going through that I just it it felt a worthwhile way to spend some of my time Mm. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, it's hard to know what to say, really. Initially, huge numbers of people go through this. It's not. It's not that un, unusual. Um, you know, to the, the proportion of the population who suffer from cancer or have cancer in their families is is enormous. And mm. why should any of us be any different? And I think there is a challenge as well in being a doctor, in in that you sort of. I, I, I don't know whether it's an advantage or a disadvantage, I think, because we tend to focus on the people who didn't get better rather than the ones who did. So you get this in your mind. You 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 can recall the patients who had a dreadful time rather than the patients who had a successful time. And and so it, it puts doctors in a very odd position, I think. Mm, I think that's absolutely right. And um, I'm so sorry that you went through that. And I know we kept in touch a bit during your illness and even hearing about it was hard. Um, but isn't it just kind of incredible that we can sit here and talk about it as though it it is something of the past now, or maybe even just the very recent past, and maybe things are still ongoing, but actually we can sit here and talk about it. And that's, that's amazing. Yeah, no, it? it's absolutely right. And as you said, we kept in touch and, and that ma- mattered a great deal to me during that and that simple simple acts of human kindness and and thoughtfulness really really matter and it's one of the one of the interesting things about this current uh, coronavirus uh, episode the the unpleasantness that we're going through as as a as a planet is the way people are generally seeming to be more sensitive and thoughtful about each other and um, you know maybe let's pray that some of that is 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 maintained afterwards Mm, I absolutely agree and I think um I mean I guess in a way times of illness or grief what you went through you know they kind of make us see that these notions of absolute certainty or control that we have in our life are in fact um illusions perhaps at yeah. the moment everyone's experiencing a bit of that as well I, th- I think that's right and I, th- I to be honest I think part of the driver for my slightly Oh, hypermanic, overachieving career, if that's what it's been, was that I, my brother uh, died um, in his 30s of leukemia. He was a doctor. Um, my dad died much younger than I am now, nearly 10 years younger than I am now. Um, and so that sense of things can happen any moment and don't waste your life mm-hmm. has always been there with me. And so <laughs> probably, uh, probably the explanation, if, 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 if a career needs an explanation, it's probably what's made me feel the need to, to, to do a lot. Is that why you, do you think that's why you've kind of chosen to do some of the roles that you have, especially some of the really big roles at the RCGP and the BMA? Um, do you think that sense of not wanting to regret yeah, it's all, it's all to do with not wanting to regret not having tried. I mean, I've, I think I've said to you before, Nish, when, when we've talked, um, 
that I apply what I call my, well, I, I used to call my deathbed rule, I'm hoping that I got to the age of 99 and looking back on my life, um, I'd say to myself, you know, you, were, you had that opportunity to apply for that job or to go for that election. Um, do you wish you'd have given it a shot? And if, and if, if my thought is I would always regret not trying, then I'll give it a shot. And of course, sometimes you don't get jobs and that's, that's fine. I, but I can never, ever, ever say, gosh, I wish I'd have tried. So there are things I've gone for and I didn't get. And that's absolutely fine. I don't feel any sense of, of, um, of anything other than I, I would have been really annoyed with myself for not trying. It's a policy that has caused me all sorts of trouble because I found myself doing jobs I would have never, ever expected to do. But that's great. I'm really I'm so glad you've spoken about that, because I think that advice you've given me on managing the imposter syndrome, that deathbed test has really come back to my mind at critical moments over the years, including this podcast where I thought, how how can we do this without the, the resources? And I hate the sound of my own voice. And yet I thought, will I regret not doing this? I need to apply the Haslam rule. Yes, absolutely. So that's why I'm not hiding under my duvet and we're doing this instead. <laughs> David, the way you talk about that just made me think that, um, do you think sometimes we apply quite a lot of pressure to ourselves as well? I mean, in your, in your career, have you felt pressure to take on every opportunity that's come your way? Or how have you learned to say no to things? Yes, I, I, yes, I have. Um, I, I have felt pressure. And, and I remember once being with a, a, a very good friend of mine uh, who was a doctor, and I was talking through a possible role that someone had phoned me up and said, was I interested in? And he said to me, David, never, ever mistake flattery for career advice. And I thought it was, it was a really great comment because, because you know, you, you, if someone says, you know, David or Nish or whoever, you, you, you could do this, why don't you do that? And you sort of feel, wow, do they think I could do that? And, and, you, and you feel flattered for the interest and the thought that it's possible. And actually your heart's not in it. There was one uh, interview, I sort of found myself many years ago on, I'll call it the educational sort of bandwagon, um, GP trainer and, and, and really interested in training as, and, and that part of the role. And I went for an interview, uh, I went for an interview to be, and I can't even remember what the title of the role was in those days, effectively postgraduate dean. And I sat, and the more the interview went on, the less interested I was in doing the job. They were talking this dreadful educational jargon that just made me, you know, made my blood run cold. And we got towards the end of the interview and they said, have you got any questions? And I said, no, I haven't got any questions, but I have got a suggestion. If you've got any sense, you won't appoint me because, <laughs> because the other guy out there is much better at what you want than I am. I, I was delighted not to do that job because it was it was the logical place for me. Everyone was saying, "David, that would be you know exactly the right thing for you." It just didn't tick my emotional boxes. It didn't didn't work for me. So I was really really pleased. And it was a sliding. I look back on that as one of a number of sliding doors moments. If you remember the movie, um, that that you know that life would have been very different from that point. Mm. I think that comment though in that interview is a marker of your humility as well, David. I'm not sure that many people would have would have done that. It's quite no. Apparently, it nearly backfired. One of the panel told me a few years later um, that you know that completely blown them away, and they thought, right, well, we have you there. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> wow. I'm glad it worked out the way it did. Yeah. 
So David, if you, if you don't mind, I'd just like to ask you a bit more specifically about leading through a crisis. I imagine lots of our listeners are out there in leadership roles, probably quite new to their leadership roles. And, you know, this may well be the most challenging experience of their leadership journeys to date. So I think it would be really helpful to hear from someone who, I mean, you obviously haven't led through a pandemic before, but even just a particularly stressful time. Maybe we'll just start with that. Can you tell us about a a time that you've led through that was particularly difficult or stressful that you remember? Um, yes, I can, I can certainly tell you about one. When I was chairman of the, uh, of the RCGP, um, there was a particular time that I found breathtakingly stressful. It really, uh, it, 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 it was something I really, really struggled with. Uh, I could barely sleep. I spent almost every night for a whole week hardly sleeping at all, tossing and turning and mulling this over and the real difficulty in this is i can't remember what the problem was and uh i don't mean that to sound you know <laughs> facetious or anything it's just it was a recognition in retrospect that the thing that was just so important actually probably wasn't but it's the fact that i can't be sure which i find interesting and uh, and I don't think this is just a measure of my sort of mental state that I can't remember things. It genuinely, genuinely relates. You get so suckered in to the crisis that's around you. Um, so you know you can get you can get so obsessed about about the problem that you're going through that it all gets out of hand. And I think for me as a doctor, it, the fact that I was doing clinical medicine as well as uh, leading the college was just just keeping in context what patients were going through at the same time that um i've I've talked in the past about two days in my life on one day i told a a personal friend of mine uh got a blood test back on him and had to go around to his house and explain that he had a very aggressive form of leukemia and on the next day i had an hours meeting with tony blair who was then prime minister and the hardest of those by a long way was dealing with my friend with the, the leukemia it, I, I, somehow being a doctor actually made the rest of it easier. It put it into some sort of perspective. Um, the, the, you know, the, the things we do as leaders are important, really important, but they're sometimes not as important as the things we do as doctors. Mm. That's a really tricky balance, isn't it? But when yeah. you're feeling pulled in the direction of maybe you could make a difference on a slightly bigger scale in, in a leadership role, how do you balance those two things? Well, it, it does depend very much on what the, what the job is you're doing. I felt, I felt very strongly that if I was speaking for GPs, I really ought to be one. It's very, very easy to go native. Um, you know, you, you move into the world of the Department of Health or, or NHS England or whatever, you know, whichever methodology it might be that you're, you're working with, and you go native with the way that they see things and think. and actually. I felt if I was a leader of general practitioners, I should practice as such and do the surgeries and see the patients. And, um, and it is tricky. It, did put, it was quite pressured to do that. But it felt from a credibility perspective, terribly, terribly important. And I suppose they're both satisfying, but just in different ways. I mean, I, I, again, I, I've, I've always found there are so many similarities between the, the roles of, 
being a doctor and being a, a, a leader. And one of the one of the main ones I, I think I recognised, and it's very frustrating, is probably the most useful things you ever do as a doctor result in nothing happening. Um, they're entirely preventive. You pick up a problem in an early stage and deal with it. And, you know, I mean, it might be detecting high blood pressure or something like that. And as a result, somebody doesn't have a stroke. And they're not grateful because they didn't know they didn't have a stroke. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, so preventive medicine is incredibly effective, really valuable, beneficial to everybody. And nothing seems to happen. The same goes in leadership skills. So I think the most useful things I've ever done as leaders have stopped stupid things happening. Um, you know, ministers have had daft ideas and I've managed to talk them from into not happening. And if you want to retain credibility in the system, you don't talk about that. Uh, so that's a bit frustrating. Um, but it's exactly, exactly analogous to, uh, to the preventive medicine. Yes, and I suppose your followers your team, the media even, um, don't, they don't see that side of things. They don't see the kind of silent good that you might be doing. Yeah, no, it's absolutely right. Uh, the simple fact is as well, the, uh, the medical press as was, and probably the blogosphere and Twitter now will take you to, you know, take many people apart, almost whatever you do, mm. someone, someone will take you apart. So the critical thing, and, and I know I, I just go on about this all the time. The critical thing is to be focused on values, on what your values are and the values of the organization and stick to those. And if you to yourself be true and if at the end of the day you feel that's what you've done and people criticize you for things they don't know about, well, and mm. I mean, that's, that makes me sound very thick skinned and I'm not. I'm quite thin skinned. I don't like criticism. Can we can we talk about that for a sec, actually, then, the thin skin? Because I think that's, I see that around friends and colleagues and people find this really hard, especially when you're new to the leadership world. Um, it feels like we step out with, with transparent skins sometimes and criticism can be so hard to take. So over the course of your career, how have you, you've clearly learned to manage it in some, in some way. How have you managed to do that? Um. That's a really good question, Nish, and I, I, I don't think I've thought—I don't think I've thought that through in any great detail. I certainly learnt to stop to stop reading sort of the comments section on websites because I just find, particularly some of the medical press, some of the comments are just heartbreaking. You just wonder what has happened to the careers of the people who are making these 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 comments i i genuinely feel very upset about people who are clearly very damaged to to write and behave in the way that they do and they probably have grounds to be very angry they've probably been unsupported in the roles that they do and so on but 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 still but still the the way that sometimes the criticism is made um i think yeah i think it's a bit like acting a role i think when i'm doing the leadership stuff it's very close to me but it's not the same me that you know goes down the pub and has a drink or or, or whatever it's a dip there's the there's slightly it's like an actor putting on a role and so when when people criticize my role as as a, a leader i think you don't know me you don't know the real me and and anyway your criticisms may be valid i'll i'll, I'll have a listen and see if they are i mean you know the last thing you must do as well is to is to brush it all away and say you're you're wrong i'm right i mean you you listen and and 
and there are occasions when I've very definitely realized I've got something wrong. And that's also, and it's also really important to say so if you've got something wrong. I certainly remember in, in, in NICE, I, I got, I'm not going to tell you anything about it, but I made one, one very wrong decision which affected one member of my team. And about a week later, I, I sent for him and I said, I'm sorry, I've just got that completely wrong. Um, and I want to reverse the decision I made. And I know this guy um, has, has always been full of admiration for the fact that I did that. That's not what I was after. I thought he'd be furious. Uh, in fact, he turned out, he said it's extraordinary to have a, a leader who's got whatever the word is, to be prepared to say they're wrong. I think that matters. I think it's really important. Hmm. And even, I mean, this is only a recent role you're talking about with NICE, so it shows that even at later stages in your career, you can, you don't always get it right. Oh, God. Um. <laughs> Sorry, I'm choking there. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> don't choke. I haven't quite finished this episode yet. Um, <laughs> you know, the only, I mean, yeah, you, you get more experience, but just things get different. And the roles I'm doing at the moment are different to to any role I've ever done anywhere else in my life. So why, I mean, so I can, I, I can, I know that some of the tricks and I know how to behave and I'm confident as a public speaker and I can do all that stuff and I know how to chair a meeting and I can do, but in terms of some of the day-to-day -day decisions, of course I'll get them wrong. And I think the bit you said about what you pay attention to is really important. I think you've once said to me before that reading certain things listening to certain people on social media will be like negative cognitive therapy exactly, and uh, yeah. I've always remembered that it's, it was a really helpful bit of advice and this applies to life in general I found for many years I used to we had a dog for a long time and every morning I'd take my dog a long walk uh, before breakfast and listen to Radio 4 and I just found that I suddenly recognized Radio 4 was so depressing in the morning and I thought, this is not a good way to start the day. So um, I changed radio stations and felt much better. I mean, it's, it's a ridiculous story. What do you but, listen to now? Well, I, I, I get my news frequently, unless, unless I need Radio 4 for something. I'll listen to Radio 5 Live, where uh, on the whole, for the news, you get the same news with a cheerful voice. And, and these sort of things matter. And particularly at a time like this, David, um, Oh, yeah. you know, if you're if you're a leader right now and you're feeling afraid and uncertain and yet I mean it's kind of been on my mind a bit that you probably need to be out there leading in a way that's inspiring confidence and hope and yep. maybe some positivity but if you're deep down feeling really afraid yourself yet you're trying to present this sense of control and calm and I mean how do you do that? I, I, well I think self-care self is incredibly important and so uh, at the moment, during this crisis that we're going through, I have a very clear rule that I now listen to or watch the six o'clock news in the evening, and that's it for news. Whereas in the past, I might have listened to the 10 o'clock news. The thought of going to bed straight after listening to a litany of, of deaths for the day would not be the best way to guarantee a good night's sleep. So controlling one's news input, I think, I think is important. But I found when I was um, either chairman or president of the RCGP and the member of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, which is the organization that brings together all the presidents, I tried to uh, get us all to pair up in a sort of a, a self-mentoring, self-supporting methodology, whereas you, you know, the different leaders could get together and share 
what a lonely task it was sometimes and um and you know in pairs sort of how how are you how are you feeling and how's it how's it going i found absolutely well one other royal college president was interested in doing that the others all looked at me as if i was completely barking mad um and that they didn't need this and i know i'm sorry on this is one occasion i'm going to say i know i was right and they were wrong i think there's a sort of an arrogance of leadership that it is a difficult task and you do need support mechanisms and that means sometimes talking to other people who know what they're going through what what you're going through i think i mean that's partly why next gen is there as well to try and form communities like this and yeah. it's so important as you say to remember that i mean leadership's not a zero sum game and you're not you don't have to be competing with other people at the same level you should absolutely be trying to lift each other up and support each other and absolutely. learn from each other yeah absolutely right absolutely right um so you mentioned there about I mean, it's quite interesting hearing what you said about the news and changing your nighttime habits. And I wonder if that will be a habit that, that you and me too should continue after this is over. Um, and I'm quite, I've been thinking a lot recently about what might last after this. I mean, it feels like we have been asked to press pause for a little while. And at some point, this will be over and we'll be pressing play again. Now, will it be the same picture that carries on playing? And from a primary care perspective, um, you were a GP for a long time. Will primary care change as a result of this, do you think? I think, I think the really fascinating thing to me has been uh, the, the digital transformation that we talked around for, for years about the potential for the use of uh, any form of digital communication between patients and doctors. And it just was it was too difficult or it was somebody else's responsibility or the governance was wrong or it, we've got too much to do on top of it. And then suddenly within weeks, within weeks, the whole game changes because there was almost no choice. I mean, the only safe way to see patients and the number of doctors and indeed patients who are now saying, actually, this works quite well for some things. Um, it doesn't work for everything, but I, th I think without a doubt, much more will be done digitally in future. And that's fine, as long as it's not everything, as long as, that, as, long as that's not the default automatic way that you, you meet doctors, because, because we need, we are all patients as well as doctors, we sometimes need a bit more of the humanity and a bit less of the technology. Mm. I, I mean, I absolutely agree with that. I think this is maybe the digital revolution that we've been trying to achieve for a long time. So that's how primary care might change. On a personal note, have you learned anything about yourself during the lockdown that you think w will change how you emerge out of this? I th I th something similar to what I learned with the cancer, uh, uh, and that relates to, to time. I, and I've already, uh, early in the podcast, I, I talked about Oh, um, doing doing a lot in my career, particularly in in sort of early years, this absolute need to be doing all the time to be achieving. And then when I had the cancer, I was feeling dreadful after the radiotherapy and all the rest. I realised actually it was perfectly all right just to sit on the sofa for an entire day and wander around occasionally and watch Father Brown in the afternoon. And I mean, it's pretty. <laughs> trite nonsense and it was exactly what I needed as a brainless thing but the serious point is that, that I, I realized that actually 
spending time in a different way was justified, that, that I didn't have to be doing, doing, doing. I was investing in time, hopefully to have more of it later. And it feels a bit like that at the moment, um, that uh, we've just got to get through this. And when we have got through it, I, I think some of the manic nature of, of behavior can, can have calmed down a bit. Mm. It's really interesting, actually, how you acclimatise and I'm starting to enjoy the slightly slower pace of life. So, David, I will, I'll go on to the kind of final three questions that we're hoping to ask everyone that comes on this podcast. So the first is, can you recommend a book on leadership that's really inspired you? Um, or if not a book, any kind of resource? Well, I, I've been thinking about this a lot and I've got shelves of books on leadership. And I don't think any of them have influenced me. I think what's influenced me is watching other people's leadership styles. I've learned an incredible amount from predecessors in roles that I've done. And some, sometimes what I've learned is I want to do it like that. And sometimes I've learned not to do it like that. <laughs> so in terms of books, I think for me, they're a bit like which magazine, the Consumers Association magazine, which which I've subscribed to for my entire life, I think, and uh, realised not long ago that I've never used it to decide what to buy. I've always used it to justify the thing I've already bought. The one book, and it's this, this will probably shock people, but the one book that I think did help me was a really, really um, simplistic American self-help book with the title, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, subtitle, and it's all small stuff. And, um, and what this was fundamentally saying in about 50 very, very short chapters was the things that you're getting wound up about today, will they matter in a year? And if they don't, why, why are they just driving you mad? And I realized, and I used some techniques from it and um, used things like stress diaries and so on, and realized that some of the things that wound me up really didn't matter. I have read it since you recommended it to me some time ago, actually, and it was really useful I did really enjoy it so that's a fantastic one can you tell us about a leader that you maybe admire now or have admired during your career and and why there's the the there've been there've been lots I I think a couple that spring to mind uh there was a guy called Syrian Kennedy who was the chairman of the healthcare commission which was the healthcare inspectorate that preceded the uh, Care Quality Commission, and I, I was his one of his uh, senior clinical advisors, and he taught me a great deal about focus and values. And he had been um, uh, he trained as a lawyer, and he'd been the guy who chaired the inquiry into the um, paediatric cardiac deaths in Bristol. And his focus on patients and on their role just I found inspirational. And in, in the RCGP, I mean, I've, I've worked with lots of great leaders there, but my immediate predecessor as, as, as chairman was uh, Mike Pringle. Uh, and I just found the way he managed to focus and be really clear about what was supposed to be discussed and why. I, I found that helpful. Uh, and the final question, David, is um, what would be your kind of top short 
pieces of advice for leaders I mean this whole podcast has been littered with some amazing advice but if you could kind of give your top three bits of advice what would they be um well the 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 single most important one if you possibly can surround yourself with good people and let them get on with it so it's it's to do with setting tone setting direction getting the right people supporting them but not micromanaging it's just i mean that for me that that's that's critical <laughs> you can't see me but i'm nodding away i think that's that's absolutely spot on um number 2 is it might sound a bit facetious, but you, you don't have to be solemn to be serious. The, retaining a sense of humour is extraordinarily important. There's that, that wonderful quote, I can't quite for a moment remember who it was. They'll never remember what you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel. And For me, I've, uh, this is terribly, terribly cheesy, and I'm not even sure I want to say it, but I, o- over my sort of senior leadership career, I've had a criteria for myself that if nobody, if nobody after a presentation or a lecture tells me that there was anything inspirational in it, I feel it's, I feel I failed because that feels to me to be the requisite of a leader is to inspire people to do better. And and that does, I, I, I'm really conscious that that sounds terribly self-important, but it just feels, it feels critical. If you can't make people feel better and inspire them to do better, then what are you leading for? I'm so excited that we've just recorded all of that, hopefully, if it's worked, um, if the technology's worked, because... Um, it's three minutes and then there's some garbage. Yeah, and then we'll have to do it all over again, but I won't mind, actually. Um, I mean, I've <laughs> learned... I've learned so much from you, David, over the well, you've years. Ne- you've heard me say all that before, I'm sure. No, so. I, I absolutely yeah. haven't, actually. I want to stop recording so I can go back <laughs> and listen to it and write some stuff down, because I think you just dropped in so much wisdom there. Um, I have learned a lot from you over the years, and I'm, I'm so glad that our next-gen community can now hear so much of the wisdom and advice that I've benefited from. Um, I mean, you know, you've been a huge source of inspiration to me and so many others because you just you have this depth of humility and a way of articulating things that feels really rare, especially when you reach the heights of leadership that you have. And I think that conversation has really just encapsulated that. Um, So thank you so much for taking the time uh, to, to do that. Not at all. I'm really, really touched by those comments. Thanks, Nish. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sir David Haslam. Um, I think for me, I just particularly like the way that he doesn't take himself too seriously, especially for someone who's achieved so much. But I'd like to know what your take-home messages were. You can email us at nextgenerationgp at gmail.com or tweet us at nextgp. And if you want to keep in the loop about future events and leadership resources, you can join over 2,000 people who have subscribed to our monthly bulletin by going to bit.ly forward slash NGGP Bulletin. We've got some really great guests coming up on this podcast. I hope you can join us for the next episode. 